Today's guest is Rebecca Traster. Rebecca is writer-at-large for New York Magazine and a contributing editor at Elle. She's a National Magazine Award finalist, and she's written about women in politics, media, and entertainment from a feminist perspective for The New Republic and Salon. And she's also contributed to The Nation, The New York Observer, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Vogue, and many other magazines. She's the author of All the Single Ladies, Big Girls Don't Cry, and her latest book, which we discuss, is Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Just a couple of things to be aware of here. We were talking past each other a bit. This was a conversation that certainly could have gone the way of my conversation with Ezra Klein. I'm happy to say it didn't. One technical limitation, which I mentioned at some point, there was a latency problem that sometimes happens in these remote podcasts where I can't interrupt a guest. So when you hear me try and it proves totally ineffectual, that's not Rebecca being especially vehement. She literally cannot hear my attempts to interject. So you'll notice that I gradually learned that and for the most part stopped trying. But it was a good conversation nonetheless. Uh, We get into the issues of Me Too and race fairly deeply. She is quite a bit more woke than I am. No question about that. Anyway, more and more, I think it's just important to attempt conversations like this. And this will not be my last attempt. So, please enjoy my exchange with Rebecca Traster. I am here with Rebecca Traster. Rebecca, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I think both of us come into this conversation with a little bit of trepidation because we're anticipating not agreeing about a very fraught topic. First, let me just say I'm a huge fan of yours. I've been trying to get you on the podcast for... In the the midst of last fall, I know, was when you first reached out to me. Right. Yeah. So there's tremendous goodwill on my side. I don't view this as a debate. I largely view this as an opportunity for you to educate me. And let me also say that one of the things I write about in the book and that I wrote about, I think, in the midst of last fall, which was the sort of height of the the flood of, of hashtag Me Too stories, was my own ambivalence. And I'm somebody, I don't think you could find, by some measures, a stronger proponent of the process we're in the midst of and of coming to terms with the power inequities, sexual power inequities, gendered power inequities, racial power inequities. I mean, this is the stuff of my work, right? I am a serious proponent of this process. And yet, as I write in the book, and I I think I made clear back then, I also have a whole mess of conflicting feelings about them because this is really hard, discomforting work that we're doing in trying to challenge, you know, systems and rules that have been in place and that we have all grown up with. And it's it's very painful in, in many cases, and it's full of contradictions and conflicting feelings, even for somebody who, like me, is a is an extremely strong proponent of Me Too and addressing sexual harassment and sexual assault as structural systemic inequities. I think this will be a bit of a tightrope walk, but I, you know, I'm just, most of all, I hope it's useful for everyone listening to us. Before we dive into the danger zone, let, let me just tell people who you are. Actually, I'd like you to describe how you see yourself as a journalist, but I'll just remind people that we are talking about your new book, which really could not have come at a better time. And that book is Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. And I, I, I can only imagine 
how your publicity team felt when they knew this was dropping right. It was either the beginning or the middle or just the end of the Kavanaugh hearing, which must have made someone think that there is a God and he's working for your publisher. What's it been like to jump into the fray at this moment? And I guess before that, just tell people how you view your position and career as a journalist. Sure. I I am a journalist. I, I am a writer at large for New York Magazine, where I've been for several years. I write about politics, media, and culture from a feminist perspective. I am both a reporter and an opinion writer, which gives me a degree of freedom. Um, I report stories, but it's <laughs> it's never a mystery, uh, you know, what my politics are, what my viewpoint is. I am the author of three books. The most recent is Good and Mad. And yeah, I mean, I think that you're right that, you know, the, the book-selling gods we're probably pretty happy about the timing. I have to say, in all honesty, and I'm saying this not as somebody, I would never pretend to not be ambitious and not want to sell books. I want all those things. It has been a fraught time to be out here selling books um, in the midst of national calamity and an extremely, extremely painful and an extremely painful chapter in exactly the story that I work at telling about the United States and how power works here. One that is going to have, to my mind and, you know, from from my perspective, very long lasting consequences. The appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court is going to have an impact over generations, certainly for the rest of my life, unless surprising things happen. And so there is certainly fraught to be out here, you know, wanting people to read my book, wanting to talk about, you know, the book was finished in June long before I could have anticipated even, you know, Kennedy's retirement. And I have I have very mixed feelings about the news cycle that has made it, you know, everybody says, oh, it's the perfect time for it to come out. And I am glad if it was, I have heard from some people that it was a useful tool to help them understand what was happening with regard to how Christine Blasey Ford expressed herself, how Brett Kavanaugh expressed himself, how power and anger were being received over the past few weeks. And I'm glad of that. But it is also, it's, it's definitely fraught to be out here selling books in the midst of this. Yeah. Well, so... Just to give you a little clearer sense of where I'm coming from, I think you and I have political goals that are very close to one another's. I mean, so the narrowest one being that I want almost anyone on earth to win the presidency in 2020 other than Donald Trump. Yes, we would. We are close on that. Although my my range, almost anyone else other than Donald Trump, I have a whole number of other people I really don't want to win the presidency. Yes. So one of my concerns here is that insofar as your framing of these issues seems likely to increase the chance of Donald Trump being reelected, I begin to worry there and sort of points at which I will flag that concern. There's also a larger goal, which I'm sure we share, which is to arrive at a society where both real and perceived political equality is maximized. And it's important that it be both real and perceived because I think real equality isn't good enough if people don't think they have it or they they don't recognize they have it. And I think there are situations in which that's already the case, and I think we may disagree about some of that as well. I'm looking forward to to hitting these points, but let's start with your book. Just a a bit of a, a history lesson here. What is first and second wave feminism. Well, I don't love the language of waves. Um, I tend to use it mostly with regard to second wave because it's become a descriptor. But the way it's used casually is first wave feminism is the sort of suffrage movement, which takes roots in the 1830s 
coming out of the abolition movement, women um, who are involved in the abolition movement and some men, including Frederick Douglass, who begin to understand the problems of enfranchisement and full citizenship, you know, fighting for the abolition of slavery, understanding also that the franchise, and this is something Frederick Douglass would later write about with regard to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, that the, the franchise for women was key. And so the suffrage movement in the form that took it from the 1830s, when the first suffrage meetings came out of the abolition movement, through 1848, which was the year of the Seneca Falls Convention and the writing of the Declaration of Sentiments, which riffed on the Declaration of Independence, calling for gender equality and, and actually calling out all the ways that women have been made dependent on, on men, moves through the Civil War and the abolition of slavery. And then there is an enormous split within the suffrage movement that turns on real racism, the fury of these allies who'd come together and work together. But when black men, but no women, were offered citizenship and the franchise in the wake of abolition, some of the white women, including some of the leaders of the suffrage movement, notably Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, the racism, which has presumably long undergirded even a lot of their progressive activism, they express fury at the idea that black men would go ahead of them and become enfranchised, and they would not. And this finds really racist expression. Susan B. Anthony writes about the indignity of having Hans and Ungtung vote before be able to vote and wield kind of electoral power over educated white women like herself and Lucretia Mott is very, very ugly. And that split lasts decades. The groups break into two different, of, of suffragists break into two different factions, two different organizations. And they do eventually come together. But in fact, a lot of that maneuvering of white supremacy within the campaign to get white women the vote, I mean, it is officially the campaign to get women the vote, is based on an argument that white women's votes, which would be in support of their husband's politics, would cancel out the votes of. African Americans. That's, you know, a lot of the the principle. It's fascinating. In in portions of that movement, even up until, you know, the year of his death, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass, who are very, very close friends and allies, even through these some of these horrible splits, you know, she asked him not to come to a suffrage meeting. He remained dedicated to the cause of suffrage throughout his life. She asked him not to come to a suffrage meeting in the South because she was she didn't want the presence of an African-American, a former slave, to undercut the message that she was sending to white women. The 1913 suffrage parade in Washington, black women were asked to march at the end of the parade. Ida B. Wells insisted on marching with her state's delegation. And so there's one moment of culmination, which is the passage and ratification of the 19th Amendment, which officially guarantees women the right to vote. But of course, it did not apply to black women or at that point, black men in the Jim Crow South. But at that point, up to 1920, you're looking at almost 90 years worth of a movement that has gone through many stages. Um, and that is the thing that's sort of traditionally referred to as first wave. But it's very hard for me to imagine it as a wave because it was almost a century. And mm. many of the women who were behind the work of it lived and died without ever seeing any of their work come to fruition. And then, of course, it's another 45 years before the passage of the Voting Rights Act, which theoretically guarantees full enfranchisement for African-Americans as well. So the project of getting that full enfranchisement, that and the franchise that was sort of conceived of in the 1830s and 1840s by abolitionists and suffragists, that takes, 
you know, more than a century. So it's very hard for me to conceive of that as a wave. The second wave is something that erupts in a kind of mass way in the 1960s, in part in the wake of the publication of Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique, and then bubbles and becomes sort of more radical and becomes more tuned to doing the legal and political work of fighting to make new rules in the 1970s. And it sort of hits its height in the 1970s and results in all kinds of changes around hiring practices, professional discrimination, gender discrimination within workplaces, the reimagining of women's educational potential, the admittance of women into, into colleges and new professions, sexual liberation, the protection of women's reproductive autonomy. There are all these sort of legal and, and policy changes that are made during that period. Now, that altogether is a fairly short eruption of a women's movement, you know, pretty much within about 20 years. And so to me, second wave is a much more specific. It's, it was kind of a wave. It was a thing that happened in, a, in an amount of time we can kind of wrap our heads around. And so I, tend, I do use the term second wave, but I don't love waves in general because then it's like, when's the third wave? When's the fourth wave? And that's all that's far less distinct. So no one's talking about Me Too as third wave feminism? I think there are, but there were third. This is why waves aren't always totally useful. There was a group of women who in the 90s called themselves third wave. They, they wanted to give, they, they were bringing forth what they felt was a new generation of feminism. Rebecca Walker, Jennifer Baumgartner, they wrote a book called Third Wave. But then there was a sort of sense that Slut walks, which really erupted far more recently, was a third wave. The, the sort of eruption of a, of a feminist internet, a feminist media, which happened, you know, in the years sort of around 2004, 2005. Was that the third wave of feminism? One of the problems with waves is that you're always kind of looking to see when's the next wave starting. And often social movements aren't really discernible as contiguous projects until they're over and you're looking at them in retrospect or until they've paused. Because, again, many of them have gone on not just for decades, but for centuries. And you're able to sort of see uh, more clearly in retrospect the, the path and pattern that they took. So that is one of the reasons that I, I tend not to use wave language to describe every iteration of a, of a women's movement. I do think that the period that we're in is an eruption that, depending on what happens moving forward, we may look back on as, you know, the moment of commencement or perhaps a peak of what I hope will be a movement to alter gender power hierarchies. Mm. And Me Too as a hashtag is not that recent, isn't it? Like 10 or 12 years old? Well, it wasn't a hashtag. In 2006, Tarana Burke founded the Me Too movement. It was specifically aimed to make clear the ubiquity of, of sexual assault sexual violence, and especially in communities for women and girls of color. And that was in 2006. Now, the term Me Too was appropriated in October of 2017, in the weeks after the publication of the stories about Harvey Weinstein's predatory, violent predatory behavior against so many women. And I believe it was the actress Alyssa Mil Milano who maybe first use the hashtag Me Too as a way to try to get personal narratives of having experienced sexual assault or harassment, you know, on the internet. And she very quickly, I think, was told about, you know, in some cases, appropriation of the 
work of those who've come before and have had less power, you know, is, can, be, can be unconscious or, or something that they haven't learned. And Alyssa Milano was told about Toronto Burke and learned about Toronto Burke's leadership and very quickly made sure that everybody, that she was very public in saying, look, this is actually work that was pioneered by and led by Toronto Burke, who should be leading us now. And so it is now better understood that the hashtag MeToo movement, you know, is, is a descendant, comes out of Toronto Burke's movement, which she is still leading. I, I would say that the hashtag MeToo movement, it is in part in response to the stories of not women and girls of color, but in many cases, the origins of it were with stories being told by very powerful white women, actresses and performers who've made some of the first allegations against Harvey Weinstein. And also, under the umbrella of the hashtag MeToo movement, the conversation has broadened to not just be about sexual violence and assault, but about workplace harassment and discrimination. Right, right. I think one place to start here is just with the mental state of anger, which you defend really at great length throughout your book. We all have this sense that Anger is an unreliable guide to action. I mean, obviously, it can get you started doing something, but I think many of us worry that, you know, it's often not informed by a lot of wisdom or careful thinking and is just by its very nature hostile to those things. I think you start your book with a reference to the philosopher Martha Nussbaum, Mm who has written about the disutility of anger. And I, I must say, I, I share that bias. It's not to say that I haven't found anger useful, but I, I feel that I've experienced its limitations just as a source of creative urgency. And I do perceive it a little differently than I think you do in public. Because I mean, one point you make repeatedly in the book is that anger tends to look great on men and terrible on women, and that this reveals a double standard that we have that we we shouldn't have. And the examples you use of it looking great on men, I just don't perceive the men that way. I mean, I think, you know, for instance, like, you know, Kavanaugh, I think you, I think it it was in some of your press, you talk about his anger working for him, but Blossie Ford was just totally measured. And had she erupted in anger, it would have been a disaster. But I mean, I just thought Kavanaugh's anger looked terrible and almost derailed him. And, you know, I thought Lindsey Graham's anger looked just, I mean, he became this absolutely repellent character the moment he erupted in an arguably totally disingenuous way. And, I mean, conversely, the video of the women getting both angry and and upset in other registers with Jeff Flake in the elevator, that played very well for those women. I mean, I thought that worked. And it wouldn't have worked, frankly, for a man. Had Jeff Flake been cornered in an elevator by angry men, the threat of violence would have been so salient that it just would have seemed totally uncivil. I view anger a little differently here. I, just, I, I don't just actually think to, you do. I don't think your points, your, your points actually echo some of the things that I have been saying. In my, again, the book doesn't deal with Kavanaugh because it was published just a few days after Christine Blasey Ford's testimony. And one of the things I've been remarking on is pretty close to what you just said, that in this particular political moment where, in fact, we are adjusting our ears and eyes 
to broader ranges of expression from a broader range of people. It's a long process. That the, the example of the two different kinds of anger, the people speaking to the Judiciary Committee, to the powerful people in the room, and specifically to the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, who are the ones who had the power in that instance, were very traditional forms of anger. We knew that Christine Blasey Ford could not be angry because it would have undercut her point, right? And one of the things I've been saying is that Kavanaugh could, as a powerful white man, and this has to do with who's presumed to be irrational to begin with. You were describing how you view anger as fundamentally unstable in some way. Women are begin with a presumption that there's something emotional or, or irrational in, that, in them. You know, this is attached to, the, to notions of what femininity entails. And white men in particular are, are presumed to, to begin with a measure of rationality, right? They are our normative citizens, our normative leaders, our normative human beings, our, our white men in the popular consciousness and politics. And so historically, their expression, women's expression of anger only serves to amplify the notion that she is fundamentally unstable or irrational, that she shouldn't be believed, that this is coming out of a place of, of instability and, and therefore sort of unreliable or not credible. Whereas for men, the expression of anger can amplify their rationality to show that they're extra passionate about whatever it is they're presumed to, to be telling you information about. And when I first saw that night, when I went home after the testimony, based on these presumptions of how anger can work for a man like Brett Kavanaugh, but would never have worked for Christine Blasey Ford, I felt like, oh, my God, it's over. He's going to be, this is going to work in his favor. It is going to be what the committee needs. And based on Lindsey Graham's own response, I felt like it's clearly what the committee wanted to see, what the powerful people who are going to make this decision, the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, you know, the president to the degree that he has power over, over his party, it's going to please them. And I felt like it did. But then there were these days where some things happened that showed me that things were changing a little bit. That anger, which I agree with you, I saw it as fucking irrational. And all the things, all the attributes that people historically have tied to women's anger, I thought it was infantile, tantrum, hysterical. I mean, he was to me, it was completely out of place. It was deeply irrational, Kavanaugh's expressions of anger. He looked like a fool. But the thing that I felt was that for the powerful people he was addressing, moving up, you know, up in power, the people who are going to make the decision about his lifetime appointment, it would be effective. But then there was, it, it turned out after, you know, people thought about it for, for 12 hours, that it was kind of mocked Saturn Night Live, mocked it in a way that matched the way that I'd seen it and that you just said yeah. that you saw it, you know? It was hilarious, yeah. As funny, as, as undermining, as, you know, and I thought, oh my God, this is interesting because this tells me that there's something in how we're receiving this powerful white man's anger that is different from how from what historical models would tell us. And at the same time, Ana Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher yelling in that elevator was so powerful for so many people. Now, I would argue and did then that in part that anger was powerful because it was communicative and connective and expressive for millions of people who didn't have power in that instance, who were not on the Senate Judiciary Committee, who were not powerful members of the Republican Party in the position of deciding how they were going to vote, that anger was the expression of and cathartic and communicative, you know, for so many people who weren't in that elevator, who weren't in that Senate chamber, and that that was a power that is key to some, to the potential social and political power of a mass movement that is looking for people to give voice to their frustration and their dissent. And that's part of why 
those women in the elevator played such a powerful role. But what was the result? The result was that his anger did do what it needed to do for the powerful people who were able to make the decision. And they made very clear that that anger, which was designed to amplify the point that he had been wronged, was the communicative force that was going to undercut their assertions that he'd been wronged. These are the Republicans who are, have since talked about how he was the victim of a mob, how he was, we feel, you know, Donald Trump saying, I feel so sorry for his family. That is all, all of those are cues that came out of his angry display on his own behalf. So you, I agree with you that the sort of precarity with which I felt for a couple days his anger might not have worked for him was symptomatic to me of the, of the fact that we are in the process of hearing different people's anger differently. And I, I agree. But ultimately, it served its purpose, which was to persuade the people who had the power to appoint him to the Supreme Court of the United States to do so, and then to take his angry model for what had happened to him and repeat it to the world and affirm that as the story of what had happened, which was that Brett Kavanaugh had been attacked and that it was his anger that was righteous in the end. And those who had stood in the way of his further accumulation of power had aggressed upon him. I wonder if there's a difference in the way feminine anger can play on both sides of the aisle politically. So I'm thinking of Sarah Palin, who I don't know that she actually ever communicated raw anger, but she was definitely put forward. I'm, thinking of her appearance at the Republican National Convention. This is before she had been discredited in all of those uh, sit-down interviews with people like Katie Couric, but it was really the apogee of her political fame. And I remember being, you know, frankly, terrified by that performance because I thought it was so good and, and effective for her crowd. I mean, I thought this is how right-wing Christian theocracy starts. But one thing that was interesting to spectator on there is that, especially in, in light of what we're talking about, is that there seemed to be an immense hunger for a woman in that role to take a very hard swing at the left and communicate a wrathful, triumphant, but feminine war cry against liberalism and everything else that she was castigating. Is that not in any way, a counterpoint to this perception that women can never strike this note credibly? No, the way that they're that they are encouraged to strike it has always been when they are striking it in fund, fundamentally in defense of white patriarchal power, which is what Sarah Palin was doing. It's what Phyllis Schlafly was doing. It's what the angry women who opposed school segregation in the South, the white women, were doing. This is this is one of the only ways in which women's anger and ferocity on a public stage is, in fact, fetishized by the powerful, because if it is on behalf of that that power and, in fact, a power that, you know, via its policy and ideology seeks to subjugate or oppress women, it's very useful to have a woman going out there and making the case for it. And you'll note that the way they make the case for it, Sarah Palin's anger was always expressed in maternal terms, which harkened back to the traditional valuation of a traditional white femininity as a mother. So she was the pit bull hockey mom, and she led the Mama Grizzlies during the, during the Tea Party move, which was a hard right move for the Republican Party, rooted in an enormous amount of misogyny. And so much of what drove the Tea Party once in Congress was, you know, shutting down Planned Parenthood. And Sarah Palin gave, you know, 
ferocious voice to this right-wing faction. But she did it using terms and, you know, in a style that affirmed her as she wasn't threatening the power structure. Women who are angry on behalf of left politics and left policy that aims to alter who has power in this country are inherently a threat. And thus their anger is immediately marginalized and vilified. Whereas women whose anger is on behalf of a power structure are very valuable to that power structure. There are rewards on offer to them. There are vice presidencies on offer to them. You know, Phyllis Schlafly wrote a book called, in her, she led an army of angry white women, angry about the alterations to a patriarchal power structure that had been made by those feminists in the, during the second wave. She led an army of women who were angry about those changed rules and expectations and opportunities in an incredibly successful, incredibly canny, tactically brilliant move against the ratification of the ERA. And she won in 1982. And in doing so, she and that army are the ones who dealt that second wave feminism its kind of symbolic final blow. And she did that while angry, but also her book was The Power of the Positive Woman. And if you listen to people who worked with Phyllis Schlafly, she, did, she you know, said, we always had to smile. You know, we were we were doing this with smiles on our faces, again, kind of reaffirming. And she herself, as a woman who was constantly out on the road, was also affirming the values of traditional stay at home maternity. Right. This was the figure that she embodied. And if you're embodying that figure, if you're embodying that figure of the woman who is valued on traditional patriarchal scales and your anger is on behalf of those traditional patriarchal powers, then that anger is not going to be viewed or treated as the same kind of threat to that power as if you're Flo Kennedy or Fannie Lou Hamer or, or Bella Abzug or, or Hillary Clinton. All right. So you mentioned a Clinton. I want to talk about both Clintons because I think so much of the current moment can be interpreted in light of their influence. But let's start with Bill Clinton, because it seems to me that he hangs over the whole Me Too moment like some kind of toxic waste that you keep finding where you don't expect to find it. He's the quintessential example of the problem, right? I mean, he's, so you're talking about male entitlement and bad behavior. He checks all those boxes. Whatever you want to say about Donald Trump in that area, Bill Clinton can ride alongside him all the way. And some of the leading feminists of the time proved, I, mean, I don't think hypocrites is too strong a word to describe how they took his side against his legitimate accusers. And to some degree, this continues to this mm. day, although I think I opinions think are probably changing quickly. It does continue to this day in the sense that, I mean, I know, you know, I, I know Monica, I don't know her well, but we, you know, we've met a few times. And I, I noticed in the news probably not more than a year ago that she got disinvited at a conference that she'd been asked to speak at because then they later secured Bill Clinton. They didn't want to put Bill in an awkward mm -hmm. situation. That was within the past six months, I think. Yeah, right. So, but, that's, but that's different from leading feminists supporting Bill Clinton, which is part yeah. of what was happening in the 90s that you're pointing right. to. Let's say that, you know, I think it was a magazine. You know, they're, they're very different scales of the kind of thing you're talking about, right? Let me just add one more piece here, Rebecca. The response to him was certainly problematic from a feminist point of view. And most consequentially, in the 2016 election, 
because of how Hillary had played that political moment when she was first lady and defending her Lothario husband from you know all of his legitimate accusers. I mean, she had you know I don't think this is debatable. I mean, she had bullied these women. She had lied about you know, or certainly seemed to have lied about things she must have known were true. And in large measure, this is I mean, I think her failure to become president was probably overdetermined. But this has got to be one of the reasons why she's not president because I mean, at that moment in that debate with Trump, where she was there on the stage going up against one of the most unethical people on earth, and she couldn't make a peep about it because of how badly her husband had behaved and how badly she had behaved in defending him. You know, to some degree, we have to perform an exorcism on the Clintons to get to a reset with respect to the current moment politically. Sure. I think that we have to perform an exorcism on a lot of, you know, we have to perform an exorcism on the way patriarchal power has left, again, systemically women dependent on men in all kinds of ways. So not just as husbands, but as leaders of political parties, as, you know, part of what happened. I, I very much agree with a portion of what you, the story you just told, right? So the way that I have long understood what happened during Bill Clinton's administration with regard to the, you know, and and for me, the big way in which it was deeply problematic from a feminist point of view is that Bill Clinton gets elected the year after Anita Hill's testimony. And Anita Hill's testimony against Clarence Thomas is such an important point in feminist history. It's coming, it is coming on the heels of the 1986 Supreme Court decision that finds sexual harassment in the workplace to be a form of of sex discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. This is after more than a decade in the courts, you know, starting in the mid-70s, where women of color filed some of the first suits, Michelle Vinson, Carmita Wood, about sexual harassment they'd sustained in the workplace. They're borrowing from civil rights laws and, and discrimination law that's just been made in the wake of the civil rights movement, applying it to their own harassment within their workplaces, those cases work their way up through the court. In 1986, you have the Supreme Court decision. And then five years later, Anita Hill testifies. And the power of Anita Hill's testimony on our view of of gendered and racial power in this country was enormous. And um, we know one version of it, which is that the next year after a view of the whiteness and the maleness of the Senate Judiciary Committee, then on both sides of the aisle, right? Democrats and Republicans who just had white men listening to and treating this woman of color with disrespect, scorn, disbelief, that view of of our representative and governing body, you know, was part of what enraged a, a generation of women, what propelled a lot of them to seek elected office the next year. We got the year of the woman. In retrospect, it seems very small, but in fact, it was four women elected to the Senate, including the first African-American woman ever elected to the Senate in the history of the country, Carol Mosley Brown. You can draw direct lines. You know, Carol Mosley Brown held a seat that later Barack Obama held. He later became our first black president. It was the year that Dianne Feinstein was elected. She, of course, was the ranking Democrat during the Kavanaugh hearings on a Senate Judiciary Committee. You know, Barbara Boxer was elected. Kamala Harris now holds Barbara Boxer's seat. Kamala Harris was on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Patty Murray, who has talked sort of most vocally about how anger at the Hill hearings in part motivated her run for the Senate. 
you know, this was a this was a change with long lasting effect. I would also say that it was the cusp of sort of hammering home what sexual harassment meant, what it was, what it entailed, how it was a form of discrimination, which had been decided by the Supreme Court, but hadn't really been made clear. It was a a form of power abuse, of, of gendered and sexual power abuse. And that conversation was really crucial. And then the next year, we elected a president who was the first Democratic president in 12 years and on whom all kinds of people on the left, on the Democratic side, however you want to describe the politics of the time, were dependent. He was, it had been 12 years of Reagan and Bush. And here was the guy who was our first Democratic president. And his behavior was in line with old expectations and mores about how men behaved with regard to women, right? This is part of, look, Ted Kennedy during the Anita Hill hearings was also silenced in part because right. of his history. Yeah, or, or did his nephew, wasn't his nephew being prosecuted his for rape? His nephew was on trial, I believe, at the exact same time as the Hill hearings yeah. for rape. And, and Ted Kennedy himself, of course, had left a woman to die in Chappaquiddick and had a terrible reputation for womanizing. So many of our leaders, left and right, I mean, this was part of the association of male sexual power and power abuse with public and political power is really deep and long lasting. Bill Clinton happened to become president at a time exactly post Anita Hill hearings when those when our expectations and the rules were changing and that was being hammered home to us. That was I mean, this is a man, you know, who had he served as president 20 years earlier, probably wouldn't have been called out for any of this behavior because it was presumed to be part of how power worked and how patriarchal power worked. As it was, he was called out. And many of the people who, including some prominent feminists, now some feminists, I want to point out, Andrea Dworkin was incredibly critical of Bill Clinton, right? There were feminists who were furious and who were very clear that Bill Clinton had abused power in his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. And there were feminists who believed the other women who, who told stories about him. But many mainstream feminists did defend him. And part of how we get there is looking at these, these, the realities of dependency. When you have men who have, white men who have disproportionate shares of power, including political power, so that they are disproportionately the leaders of your party on whom you are dependent, right? To, you know, to appoint Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court, to pass FMLA, our deeply meager, but all there is protection for people who take, you know, maternity leaves and, and, and family health, health leaves. Those women defended the president. Now, do I think that that was an error? Yeah, I do. I think, among other things, it derailed the crucial feminist conversation that was unfolding in that period. Because, and it did, the words you just used, right? Hypocrisy. You know, that this was, because feminists were on the line. Now, make no mistake, look at the women who recently called for the, or a year ago, called for the resignation of of Al Franken. Had they not, they would have spent the rest of their careers in the Senate being accused of hypocrisy because while they were working on committees that wanted to address sexual harassment, you know, in the military, on college campuses, everyone would have said to them, but you, you know, didn't, but you defended your colleague. So this must just be a partisan issue. As it was, they called for his resignation. And now they, especially Kirsten Gillibrand, who was the first to, to call for it, you know, is vilified as opportunistic. And, and you know, by the way, that, that a very similar thing likely would have happened had 
had feminists had the power. Now, they weren't there weren't enough women in the Senate at that point to, you know, or in a position to have, you know, exactly called for the president to resign in a way that would have prompted him to, you know. But had they, they probably would have been accused of being divisive and problematic and bringing down this president who was our first Democratic president in 12 years. And one of my anxieties that gets us to the question of how Hillary Clinton's political career wound up getting viewed through the lens of her husband's bad behavior is that one of the side effects of sexual harassment, assault, power abuse perpetrated by powerful men is that some of the damage done is not done only to the people who are themselves harassed or assaulted or groped. It's done to all kinds of people in the orbit of the harasser. And one of the many ways in which that happens is that so often the women around the harasser, whether or not they themselves were harassed, are evaluated on how they reacted to his behavior. They are asked to be the police, the judge, the jury. And if they, they do it right or wrong, I mean, Hillary Clinton for years, when she first ran for president in 2008, I heard from feminists all the time who, were, who wouldn't support her because she hadn't left him, right? Her choice to support him hurt her with feminists at the same time that feminists who defended him were criticized and themselves called hypocrites for having defended him. You know, this is the, and yet, whatever it is, 20 years later, again, when Kirsten Gillibrand is asked in a conversation like this to go in the New York Times to go back and say, what would you have done about Bill Clinton? And she says, I think he should have resigned after having been pressed several times on this. She is condemned as a traitor and an opportunist, just, you know, swinging on the trend of Me Too, you know, by, by many powerful Democrats. So, you know, I want to I stress that this is one of the things that's becoming more visible. And one of the things that I write about at length in my book is the way that these behaviors, power abuses, aren't just damaging to those who are directly abused. It's that there's a whole cycle of harm that moves outward, waves of, of harm that move outward and often especially damage the women who in one way or another are dependent on this power that is so disproportionately held by these powerful white men. And that's a lot of what the, pro- the whole process that you just described w- regarding Hillary Clinton. You brought up sexual harassment as a, a specific band of this problem. And I, I think we should define it or at least distinguish it from just general sexual misbehavior, which is also being responded to by Me Too. How do you think about sexual harassment? And in particular, I'm trying to steer you toward a distinction you made in opposition to something Masha Gessen wrote. You talk about a category error. So just give us your take on sexual harassment. Well, sexual harassment, you know, in the decision written by William Rehnquist in 1986, sexual harassment, in fact, was found to be a a case of, of sex discrimination within the workplace. And so it is distinct, though it can be combined with sexual assault. Sexual harassment in the workplace may take the form of sexual assault or, you know, but sexual harassment doesn't have to be assault in order for it to be behavior that damages women's professional and economic standing or an abuse of power by a figure who has more power than the person he is 
groping or coming on to or um, treating in a diminishing way. Mm. Yeah, so I remember what, in response to, you know, Me Too kicking off, I remember Masha Gessen wrote in The New Yorker that she was worried about what she called a sex panic and this idea that we were witnessing a kind of moral panic and a reversion to Victorian ideas about women being inherently vulnerable things that lack agency and they're just, it's all about what the men do to them and around them and the women are not even participants in their fate on any level. And the point you made in your book, and I think you probably made this in an article before you published your book, but... I did. I did. I wrote in response to Masha Gessen, who I, whose point, by the way, I, I want to say, I think her point is a very good one. I just didn't think it applied to the conversation that was unfolding in the fall right. of 2017, which I thought was about behavior that was far broader than simply about sexual harm. Some of it was about sexual harm and assault and violence, but a lot of it was about the acknowledgement of other kind of inequities, some of which had been made clear via instances of a sexualized power abuse, but were not necessarily about the harm sustained by that power abuse. That not sexual harm, professional harm, economic harm. Right, right. I recall that you did write about it before because I had her on the podcast a few months ago and I brought this up with her and she completely took your point on this point. When you think about sexual harassment in the workplace, it can be harassment that is doesn't entail groping or anything overtly a matter of a sexual assault or that kind of transgression. It can just be the fact that a woman is paying this massive price in bandwidth trying to navigate around the bad behavior, the crude jokes, the... Right. And that, I mean, exactly. And in fact, to use the sort of most, the sort of least violent instance I can think of, right? Like, let's take the the idea of a crude joke. And I just, I just want to sort of lay this out to be clear about what I'm talking about. And I think this is, you know, what you're aiming to, to describe. You know, if you work in a company and there's a meeting and the, the boss tells a crude joke, a sexist joke, and you're a woman who is offended by that joke. It's not sexual violence, right? I, I suppose, and I want to, you know, I'm sure that there are some people who might be triggered by that or, or experience, you know, a PTSD. But for, for the vast majority of people, it's not that you've been grabbed or assaulted or done physical harm. However, the way you react to that joke can be determinative of your trajectory within that workplace and thus your professional economic future in ways that sort of extend long beyond that, you know, single instance of a joke. You know, if you laugh along, even if you're uncomfortable and you kind of force yourself to laugh, well, then maybe, A, it invites further crude jokes because you're assumed to be somebody who plays along and is game. And so then you're subjected to, a, you know, a future in which you're regularly told offensive jokes. Maybe if you don't laugh, the boss sees that you don't laugh and begins to associate you with a kind of humorlessness or, or you know, that you're a problematic person. Maybe you're not invited to the next meeting, you know, there, and then you're not invited to the next meeting. You gain a reputation, you know, as being disruptive or unpleasant, right? That's, those are instances, and that, that can determine, you know, your fate within a company, your relationship between you and your, your bosses and your colleagues. If you become the problematic person who didn't laugh at that joke, then is there a toll on the people you hang out with 
in that office because they're hanging out with you and you're the problematic lady who didn't laugh at that dirty joke. You know, those kinds of things, those are sort of daily landmines for so many women in so many spaces in the world. And that's part of what was being described, what has been described and sort of reviewed and thought about, and the way in which those seemingly tiny choices can have shaped our notions of ourselves, the way that we're valued within our professional spheres, the experiences we had in our careers. And that's part of the discussion that was happening around the hashtag MeToo movement. It is distinct from Tarana Burke's movement, which was specifically to address the tolls and ubiquity of sexual violence and assault. Right. But it was a part of the conversation that sort of exploded last fall. Hmm. Okay, so I want to touch the variable of race here. You bring up race a lot in the book and in ways that strike me as distracting because one of the most salient examples on the worst end of the spectrum of male misbehavior, certainly in recent memory, is Bill Cosby. And you you mentioned Bill Cosby and you even mentioned him in context where you have been talking about white male privilege and white guys thinking they can get away with anything. And then you drop Bill Cosby in. So it seems to me that the temptation to talk about this as often as you do in terms of white men, it just strikes me as frankly awkward because when, we're, when you're talking about the litany of, of abuses of, of famous people of late, race is not part of the problem, or at least it, it need not be seen as part of the problem. Well, I don't think there's ever an instance in which race need not be considered in this country because so what I'm talking about fundamentally is power and who has it. And I am talking about white men, but there are also women who have been credibly and persuasively accused of sexual harassment during this past year. There are, yes, of course, men of color, R. Kelly, Bill Cosby, who have been accused. There are men who have been the accusers of other men, right? So you're right to suggest that the broad strokes that I sometimes use don't give the full picture. But I would say that what I'm describing is power and that there is no way that you, that you can acknowledge who has had economic, political, public power in this country without acknowledging that the vast proportion of that power has been held by white men. It is true that I don't spend a lot of time on Bill Cosby in this book, but I've written pretty extensively about him in the past, including how his race plays into this. And how, in part, his race and his role regarding respectability politics and black communities and the way in which the Cosby show itself, which is the thing that made him beloved and famous, was a product that often that made white people feel good about racial inequity. I mean, I've written about this at length. And also that the accusations against Bill Cosby leveled by white women made many liberals feel very anxious in part because of the history of false accusations of sexual violence having been leveled by white women in the past against black men, and that all of these complicated factors were in play when it came to the question of how it was that Bill Cosby's alleged aggressions and and rape of multiple women had been in the news, known facts for more than a decade during which he was still being celebrated within his profession, getting Lifetime Achievement Awards. So I don't think there is any talking about Bill Cosby without talking about 
the racial dynamics around Cosby's case and Cosby himself and the kinds of messages he was sending to black communities, the ways that the that white liberals had received his show and his career as being fundamentally friendly to whiteness. I mean, Bill Cosby is a man who said there's, you know, there's structure, systemic racism isn't a thing. This is, you know, pull your pants up. You know, those were, and, and there was a much milder version of that that was transmitted through his beloved sitcom. And that affects the way that liberals who would be concerned about multiple allegations of assault receive those allegations if they're leveled against a black man. So, you know, you are right that within the book, I include Cosby without delving into the racial and gendered politics around him at any length at all. But that is something I've done in my other writing in in the past. And there is no way, I don't think, to talk about who has had the disproportionate share of professional public and sexual power in this country without acknowledging it that without acknowledging that both race both gendered and racial identities and power structures are in play and so that is why i often t- talk about white men and there's also no way to talk about what happened during you know starting in the fall of 2017 without acknowledging the racial dynamics around the accusers and the fact that it was prominent wealthy white women who were some of the first to level the accusations against Harvey Weinstein. And also, I believe, I'd have to go back and fact check this, but I believe that the only two accounts he bothered to deny were the accounts of the two women of color, Lupita and Selma Hayek. It seems like power is the variable. I mean, of course, I'm going to grant you that white people have a disproportionate share of power, right? So that... and, and men have a disproportionate share yeah. of power. Maleness and whiteness correlate with power in our society. There's no question of that. But it seems that differences in power cut through the data fairly accurately. Like Kobe Bryant, what happened Mm -hmm. to his, the rape allegation against him? I don't know. I don't even remember what I thought about it. But he's a famous, wealthy, black athlete who's enjoyed a result of his entanglement with the justice system that as you know, many black men don't. O.J. Simpson is the quintessential example of this. The idea that he is the representative of, you know, the fate of black men in our justice system is ridiculous. But, you know, he's obviously there were racial dynamics in how that jury decision ended up. I guess it worries me to reflexively put race into the conversation when other variables account for the disparities in outcome were seen. If we're talking about power, let's talk about power. Of course, we can notice that men have more of it and white men have the most of it. But the reason why this is it's so counterproductive from my point of view is it's, you're endlessly opening yourself up for the embarrassing counterexample that you can't figure out how to talk about, whether it's Bill Cosby or Morgan Freeman or as I think you were probably referencing Asia Argento, you know, the woman actress who... Oh, no, I was actually thinking of the... Um, but Asia Argento is, a, is another example. I was thinking of the NYU pro- professor, Avital. Oh, okay. The ph- feminist philosopher. Oh, yeah. Though, actually, yeah, I do know that story. So, yeah. So the moment you have women suddenly doing something or men of color or, you know, God forbid, women of color. Again, this is not to say that racism isn't also a problem, but it's not encroaching everywhere. 
But I don't think it's I don't think that those stories are, you know, embarrassing contradictions. I think they are, as you yourself said, sort of exceptional cases. And that I don't think again, they become they they only if you if you can talk about those cases, I mean, I, I know I just talked about a lot of the racial dynamics around Cosby. If you can talk about the way that race has also shaped that race has shaped, you know, so much of so many of these cases and from so many different directions, you know, to talk to acknowledge race and gender as um, factors in who has power in this country is not to tell some rudimentary, simple story. It's all complicated. You know, you can't talk about O.J. Simpson and the kind of investments that people had in that case without, again, looking back at the extremely long and terrible history of Black men, and especially those who in some way were rising to power, being accused, in many cases falsely, of sexual misconduct. I mean, this is also something that Clarence Thomas himself brought up and and cast, you know, this to his advantage, the allegations yeah. made by Anita Hill against him yeah. as a high tech lynching, right? There's not. It's it's only embarrassing if you take them as sort of the most rudimentary that racism is just about how every individual reacts to every other individual, and not looking at who has been granted and who has held the disproportionate amount of power in this country. And there's yes, Bill Cosby, Kobe Bryant, O.J. Simpson, right? And then you have Roger Ailes, Donald Trump, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bill Clinton. I mean, there, you know, this is the, the, the number of white men who have wielded popular, professional, economic, political power in this country. I mean, this is we, we are talking about massive structural realities and, you know, individual exceptions to the rule do not do not make that rule any less true. It's their exceptions that we need to talk about. And we need to talk about the, the power dynamics and, you know, and the kind of and, and how race did play into those exceptions. And and, and, the, and it's often a very complicated story. But if you're telling that story and are willing to actually have the conversations about how how race and gender and power and class intersect, then good. That's part of what we need to do. That's part of the process we have to get through to understand, you know, how our history meets our present and how, you know, what we're doing to address pervasive and systemic inequality in this country. Mm. I want to come back to the point that Masha Gessen was making about there being a kind of panic here. She called it a sex panic. I called my concern here a concern over a moral panic. And there's a feeling that many of us have gotten that there's a kind of inquisitorial spirit to much of what has happened and what may yet happen under the banner of Me Too and anger. Your much championed anger as the driving force here, I think it can somewhat reliably push us in that direction. I want to bring up another person here who amusingly was the actor who played Kavanaugh in that wonderful SNL send-up of the proceedings, Matt Damon, and what happened to him when he had the brilliant idea of coming forward 15 minutes into the Me Too eruption and venturing his opinion. But to the eyes of most people, I think, what he said was about as anodyne as 
utterances get. I mean, basically, he was saying, you know, I totally support Me Too. I don't have his quote verbatim, but correct me if I'm wrong. He was basically saying, this has been a long time coming. This is all great. But of course, we have to distinguish between rape on the one hand and, you know, groping somewhere in the middle and bad jokes on the far extreme of the benign. And, you know, all of these things are problematic in their own way, but they're problematic in very different ways. And I'm worried that we're losing these distinctions. And for that, he just got savaged, right? And, and you know, <laughs> swiftly apologized and said, I'm never going to talk about this again. So what there was a hunger for at that moment, and I think there still is, is some assurance that we will observe that what Bill Cosby did, I mean, there's probably some daylight between, frankly, between Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein. I mean, Harvey Weinstein is, from what I can tell, an absolute monster. And actually, you have your, your own interesting story to tell about having met him. But, you know, the guy seems like a total sociopath. But, you know, what he did is not the same as having systematically drugged and raped 50 women, if, if that's in fact what Cosby did. But, you know, Harvey Weinstein almost certainly also belongs in prison for what he did. But then there's, you know, then there's Charlie Rose, right, who's done other egregious things that professionally harmed people, but I'm not sure what should happen to him. And then we've got Al Franken, and then, we, and then we've got, you know, Aziz Ansari produced a very bad date for somebody. And there's this spectrum that's, that I think Matt Damon and many others were worried at the time was getting ignored or getting ra- getting summarized in the same sentence as this is what men are up to. Can you respond to that concern and why you? Uh, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. there's a lot that you just said that I'd like to respond yes, to. Yes, go. First of all, it. you know, I wrote at the time, and many other people who were writing about this, the you know, many feminists and journalists were writing about this and affirming that women know perfectly well that there is a difference between violent rape and groping, physical coercion, bad sex, off-color jokes. Again, where I disagreed with Masha Gessen, who's, who I think is brilliant, and whose point about the perils of a reversion to kind of Victorian attitudes about women as passive sexual victims, that point is a, is a really valid one. I did not think that it applied to the conversation as it was actually unfolding in the fall of 2017 or since. And to that end, I would point out that nobody's suggesting that Charlie Rose go to jail. Charlie Rose was alleged to have, you know, physically and conversationally harassed, come on to, and in some cases, you know, physically groped and, and approached young women who worked for him. He was accused by more than 35 women, I believe, of doing this, interns mm. and yeah. calling them and telling them when he was their boss about his wet dreams about them. This is behavior that, you know, if it's indeed true, probably means Charlie Rose shouldn't have a job. And that is, in fact, what's happened to Charlie Rose. Nobody has taken his fortune from him or, or deprived him of his liberty or criminally convicted him. He was fired. What happened to Matt Damon is people were mean to him on the internet. And they were mean in part because this thing that he was saying, which is the point you just made, I think people were angry in response to that, in part because it was a sort of condescending misreading 
of the actual very nuanced and complicated conversation that was taking place and a form of collapsing all the varied and nuanced reactions to the different kinds of stories that were being told in a way that made the various people who were telling stories appear punitive or, to use your word, inquisitorial, when in fact what a lot of these people were doing, and this is really important, with just telling stories about what happened to them, they weren't making the decisions about the consequences. This was not an inquisition. This was not women or, or the men lobbing allegations as judge and jury. This, the role of the women telling their stories of harassment or assault or any of the you know, wide variation of tales of what it had been like as, you know, to navigate these sexual power inequities were simply the act they were engaging in was telling their stories. And then in many cases, institutions, institutions that, by the way, were probably covering their own asses for having, you know, covered up or supported a lot of these guys turned a blind eye or, you know, not cared about, you know, what were known aggressions, covered their own asses by firing them. It wasn't the women who were making the decisions about you know, the consequences for these men. And yet they were depicted as, you know, part of a witch hunt, as if they were the magistrates, you know, throwing men in jail. Men, except for Bill Cosby, and that's after 12 years of legal action. Mm. So far, no one else has gone to jail. It is an open question. Harvey Weinstein is the one who is, who is, we know, being criminally charged. Otherwise, we are not talking about criminal charges for any of these guys. Now, as you said, what happened to Matt Damon? And I write in my book about how Terry Gilliam, about all the ways in which the consequences that these men did face, losing their jobs, being criticized, being, having people be mean to them on the Internet, all of it, talk about flattening it. So many of these things were cast by their friends or by themselves as having been violently aggressed upon, right? So Terry Gilliam said of Matt Damon, that he was beaten to death. Now, as you pointed out, Matt Damon appeared on Saturday Night Live in a, you know, in a widely praised skit, what, three weeks ago? Matt Damon's career is not right. over. No, no, it's, Bill it's not. Bill O'Reilly, who was fired from Fox News, has the number one best-selling book in America right now. The, the ways in which the flattening was in, I think, the assumption of many people who were asking some of the questions that you were, the flattening of what was happening to these guys being cast as death. There are a million examples of this. Mike Barnacle saying of Mark Halperin, who lost his job as a Morning Joe and MSNBC commentator after multiple women accused him of having pressed his penis against them when they were young and working for him at a network. And his friend Mike Barnacle said, sure, you know, he should pay for what he did. But how many times can you kill a guy? Tom Brokaw, who was, you know, a woman told a, a highly corroborated, well-documented story of how he tried to kiss her in the 90s. No one was coming for Tom Brokaw's job. He is an elder statesman in the media. There was no, you know, torch gang saying down with Tom Brokaw. It was a minor story in a larger piece about a culture at, at that news network. And Tom Brokaw wrote a letter about himself claiming that he'd been taken to the guillotine and stripped of his honor. The flattening or exaggeration that you see coming from women who were simply telling the stories of having been kissed or having been groped. The flattening, I think, and compression of categories came when we treated these guys 
as if they'd all been trotted off to jail or murdered or guillotined in in a revolution. And the fact is, some of them lost their jobs. Some of them are back. Some of them, you know, are doing just fine. None of them, you know, maybe Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby is, is the exception to this, were so far have been brought up on criminal charges. Many of them, a couple of them have been offered prominent places in which to tell their side of the story. Many of them have been cast as the victims. Many of them still are deeply loved by millions of people. That is true of Charlie Rose. You know, at some point in the past year, he like sent a butt tweet or something like the letter H and all kinds of people responded to him on Twitter. We love you. We miss you. We miss you so much. You know, the, they were not killed. They're not dead. They're not incarcerated. They were not found guilty. And in fact, the women who are so often accused of being, you know, the, the killers, you know, who beat Matt Damon to death, what those women were doing were raising their voices and telling stories of what their careers had been like or what their experience of sexual coercion or harassment had been like. They were just telling full stories of their lives, and they were quickly cast as executioners. And that is part of uh, the way that power works. You mentioned the story that I had about Harvey Weinstein. When I was a 25-year-old reporter, I won't tell the whole thing, but basically I was sent down. I was writing a story about a movie that his company was producing and holding back. And I had reported the story. He wouldn't return my calls. I went to a book party with a colleague who was the gossip columnist. I asked him a question on the record. He answered it with like a totally banal answer. I turned away to go. I got my on-the-record response. And then he got angry and told me it was off the record and tried to grab my tape recorder. And he pushed me with his finger. He called me. I don't know what the language limitations are, but are there language limitations? No, not at all. Okay. He called me a cunt. This is in a big book party, you know, at the Tribeca Grand, you know, the night before the 2000 election. He called me a cunt. He said, I'm glad I'm the fucking sheriff of this fucking piece of shit fucking town. Um, He pushed me hard on the shoulder with his, you know, with his forefinger. My colleague stepped in, calmed him down, and then it exploded again. He pushed my colleague down a step and, you know, my colleague's tape recorder hit a woman's head, knocked her out. He then took my colleague out onto the street on 6th Avenue in Manhattan, put him in a headlock. The next day, the way that, and that, that party was, you know, covered with journalists and photographers. And the next day, the way it was spun, I can't remember if it's New York Times or New York Post, was that we, we were pushy reporters at this party. So that we were cast as the ones who were the aggressors. We were the pushy ones, even though this gargantuanly powerful and actually physically incredibly imposing man had put two young, had, had physically pushed two young women, uh, two, I'm sorry, my colleague was a man, two young reporters. Those reporters were cast as the ones who'd been the disruptive force. And this is, I also write about the, in the book about how I noticed this pattern with regard to Freddie Gray's death in Baltimore in 2015. Freddie Gray is a, is a man who was taken into a police van and given a rough ride and later died of his injuries. And in response to his death, there were protests. He was an African-American man. There were protests. And when I, I was a reporter at the time, writing about all kinds of forms of inequality, and the thing that I noticed was that all the news reports said that the violence started when protesters threw rocks, and that the violence done by the more powerful entity to the less powerful entity was kind of indiscernible as violence because that was just how power worked. But when the people had less, who had less power threw stones at police cars, which was fundamentally a lesser kind of power, they were cast as the instigators of violence, as the disruptive force. That's the mob of, you know, women who have no power 
in the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, who's actually being confirmed to a position where he's going to have power over their bodies, their votes, their ability to collectively bargain for the rest of their lives. Their only option is to raise their voices and yell during the vote for his confirmation. They are cast as a mob by our president, by the, by the party that supports our president. They're the aggressive mob. And that is what happened around me, too is that the women who were using the only power available to them, because they weren't the anchors or the chefs or the editors or, or the movie producers, part of the story that they were telling was about the circumstances that ensured that they weren't those powerful figures. The way that they felt exiled or were self-exiled from the professions in which they had worked and been ambitious, and yet they had been harassed or assaulted and, and had wound up leaving or never rising within those professions, the power they had available to them was to raise their voices and tell their stories. And how were they cast? As, witch hunt, as part of a witch hunt, mob justice, inquisitors, executioners. And I think that that's really worth thinking about. It is a pattern that is around us every day. Now that, now that I see it, it is, it's everywhere. When power works aggressively, when somebody's, when, you know, when a more powerful person assaults a less powerful person, it is almost indiscernible to us. But when that less powerful person resists, either by telling the story or throwing a rock or whatever it may be, and disrupts or dissents from the way that power is supposed to work, that is quickly cast as aggressively disruptive, chaotic, problematic, violent. And that pattern was all. And that's when we talk about what happened to Matt Damon. Matt Damon said a thing that a lot of people were angry at and they got angry at him on Twitter. And now he's on Saturday Night Live and everything's and he's fine. Well, so there was a lot in there. I, I, I want to respond. I, I just I think if nothing else, we will prove how complicated this topic is. But by way of taking Matt Damon's foot out of my mouth, I should say a few things. First, there's no question that some people should be going to jail and some people should lose their careers and that there should be consequences to to many of these actions we've been discussing. And I think that the Matt Damon moment exemplifies another concern, however. What we were witnessing there, at least to my eye, was the limits of Matt Damon's power, right? I mean, Matt Damon is one of the most powerful people in our society. As you say, he should be able to recover from almost anything. There's, he has very few bosses. And yet he perceived a risk to his career in hanging out there for more than five seconds under this blowback on Twitter. And it's very interesting. You said the story you told about Harvey Weinstein, that particular part of the story had nothing to do with sexual dynamics or sexual harassment. That was just raw power exerted by a sociopath. He manhandled you guys, got you out of his party, managed to get the press to cover it up. But he's kind of a unique case. I mean, he was managing to get all kinds of things covered up that ordinary powerful people can't. You know, Bill Clinton was president of the United States, and he still couldn't prevent a semen-stained dress from showing up on the evening news in about 24 hours. Harvey Weinstein, you know, faced down Brad Pitt, who was complaining that he had mistreated his girlfriend, Gwyneth Paltrow at the time, and Brad Pitt, another extremely successful, powerful person, apparently couldn't do a damn thing or wouldn't do a damn thing in the face of Harvey Weinstein's power. I still can't figure out why Harvey Weinstein had any power making those niche movies. 
you know, I mean, like there how, were movies that won Oscars and yeah, made. I mean, but still, within the I mean, industry had tremendous power over who was considered. Granted, of, of who could win Oscars? It still is not. I mean, it, Shakespeare and Love is not a billion-dollar franchise, and and we're living in in an environment. But where, Gwyneth Paltrow won an Oscar for Shakespeare and Love. And if you think I, that winning an Oscar isn't sort of the ultimate, it's something. Um, yeah, it's something. You know, power. But, achievement for people who work in Hollywood and are ambitious within that field. And I, I mean, I don't know how we talk about power. No, no, no. But I'm just saying the thing, the tide has turned so quickly and in so many surprising ways. I mean, we have, who is it? The, his name, James Gunn, the writer who, he is the writer of a billion dollar franchise, uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy, who got immediately fired and had his movie torpedoed for a history of bad tweets. I think it's right to think that a lot of these powerful people are reasonably worried that they don't have the power they think they have. They can't take the risks. Frankly, the reason why I can have this conversation with you is there's no one who can fire me. I can explore this with you and make mistakes. And part of what is novel about this conversation is showing whatever mistakes I make to the audience and just processing it in real time with you. And that's the experiment I'm happy to run here. But I couldn't do it on CNN with you. And there's something that worries people about that. And it's not not just guys with power who are worried. I mean, there are many women journalists whose names you know, who you write about in your book, people like Caitlin Flanagan and Katie Royfe. And I don't think you mentioned Claire Berlinski in your book, but I mean, Claire Berlinski, they've taken this other point in defense of the Matt Damons of the world because they see a kind of frenzy or witch hunt or moral panic or at least imprecision here in how we target people. And even and there's even a point in your book where you acknowledge this, where you say, and now I'm going to quote you, quote, the rage that some of us were feeling didn't necessarily correspond to the severity of the trespass. Lots of us were as, as incensed about the guy who looked down our shirt at a company retreat as we were about Weinstein, even if we could acknowledge that there was something fundamentally nuts about that. So. But, yes, you're, but do you're, you want to no, go on and say what I write after that? Well, I, th- because I think I explain why there's I, I mean, that's you're absolutely right. This is what I mean, by the way, when I say that those of us I was writing that sentence appeared in a piece that I wrote in real time in the fall of 2017. And that's what I mean when I say that some of the flattening that's been done is behaving as if we were just out there wielding these clubs in which we were not, you know, acknowledging distinctions. I write about that and make that point. Precisely because I go on to make the point that what I was getting to and what I would write in a letter, later piece, I believe, in response to Masha Gessen's piece, but I was working through it there. I say we know that there's something fundamentally irrational of the way, about the way that these giant trespasses are making us as, as angry as some of the minor stuff. But what I go on to say is, in part, that's because it's not just about the sexual violence. It's about getting this view of our value, our diminished value in the world. It's about sexism. I think the end of that paragraph is like, that's because what we were identifying was not simply a pattern of sexual harm, but rather sexism, systemic subjugation, systemic gender inequity. And and that's why, and that, I mean, that's part of the argument that I go on to make. But just to be clear, that was a, that was a sentence that I wrote in the same period that people were saying that people like me we're just making these broad characterizations in which everything was the same. You acknowledge that it was fundamentally nuts, right? So, or that there was something fundamentally nuts about that. Something yes. fundamentally nuts. And then I go on to write about why I 
why we got there. And and I want to go back to what you said about Matt Damon risking something. Are you risking something in talking to me? What are you risking that I'm going to that I'm going to argue back? That I'm going to say I think you're wrong, or that I'm going to say, no, oh no, 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 no. Actually, no, I think it's that's not. sexist <laughs> or racist. It's, it's the what audience. What was Matt Damon risking? He was risking that people would disagree with him. What is Katie Royfe risking? That people, and as I did, disagreed with her vociferously. That is very different from how it's often cast, which is, you know, as the victims of this mob. Katie Royfe got, I believe it was a cover cover story in Harper's, and Matt Damon, as we have covered already. He's just fine. He's no, no, but there are people. There are people who. So just take someone like okay, a not perfectly analogous example, but take Roseanne Barr, right? So Roseanne Barr tweets something stupid. People can argue about how racist it was, but at a minimum, it was a stupid tweet that the whole world hated, and she lost a number one rated show over it. I don't know how many millions of dollars she lost as a result, but. You might say, well, it doesn't matter. She's already rich. But there are many people in a position who are not necessarily already rich. They're successful and they can still lose everything over a tweet. But it's right? not losing everything. Well, they lose it's their careers. It's not losing your, lose, necessarily losing your freedom. It's again, we're no, not, it's, they're it's not going to losing prison. a job. People yes. are fired from jobs without cause all the time. People are fired from jobs every single day in this country for no reason, with no investigation, with no compelling allegations at all made against them. Roseanne Barr, whose career in part depends on and whose whose job within her network is to draw ratings and whose whose work depends on being loved and popular by some segment of the population, tweeted a thing that I think is inarguably racist. Now, and and her again, well, it well, wasn't not, the people not who yelled you, at her not on if you Twitter believe. or wrote pieces who decided that she was going to lose her job. They voiced their objection to her racist locution, which again came in the context of years of her, you know, support of Donald Trump, and you know, this was not a singular thing. And they voiced their objections, and her network fired her. And so the notion that the danger to her is coming from the people who are simply voicing their offense at her having offended them, having offended, you know, that's, that is, and the risk that Matt Damon should be scared because people might disagree with him and that that might interfere with his further accrual of power, right. Like, okay, people might disagree with you, but I haven't seen much evidence. Roseanne lost her show. She was fired. Again, the, the firings, this notion that to be fired, to have, your, to have your power disturbed because people are offended by your behavior. I mean, being fired for much less is a daily occurrence for people who have far less power and stability than the people that, that you're worried about having their lives ruined, you know? And I don't know, you know, if, if, it, to me, this is just, again, this is making very powerful people whose the complaints about whom are about them offending from their position of power, people who have less power, vulnerable people. And then turning this into, turning it into they being the less powerful victims, when in well, fact the less it, well, powerful it's not just didn't that. have the authority in them to, to, to take their jobs from them. It's, it's, it's and not in fact, just those that. less powerful people themselves 
are reasonably worried every day that they might lose their job for no reason. Well, actually, it's not just that. First of all, let me just clarify what I meant by Roseanne Barr's tweet being arguably racist. She claims not to have known that Valerie Jarrett was black. Mm, Yeah, that's hard to believe. Well, it's actually not hard to believe if you don't know anything and you just Google a picture of Valerie Jarrett. Just She's on record as having said she thought she was Jewish and she just didn't. There was zero racial subtext to what she was tweeting. Now, you might think she's lying. That's fine. But if, yes, I if, believe that she is lying. If true, that takes the, the racism part out of it, at least for most people. It's not just that we're worried about wealthy people or already successful people or already powerful people losing something when the, their audiences turn against them. It's We're all in this situation where now we're talking about the phenomenon of internet mobbing and what's happening on social media to people and the ways in which organizations, corporations are motivated to defend against this. People who are far less powerful than Matt Damon and Roseanne Barr are even more susceptible to having their reputations destroyed online by some internet mobbing phenomenon. But do you know, I mean, who who's most susceptible to having their careers or their reputations destroyed are the people who have less power in these scenarios to begin with and whose acknowledgement of that power differential may motivate their criticism of the more powerful figure. I mean, this is, you know, to be angry that somebody is behaving in a racist or sexist way and to view that allegation of racism or sexism as more damaging then the racism or sexism itself is where we get to these, again, this, this inversion of who has power within the situation. That doesn't cover Matt Damon. I mean, the reason why I raised him and the reason why many people felt that was a significant moment is that he wasn't expressing sexism, much less racism. He was just expressing a concern that there was just a kind of frenzy in the air that was making people reluctant to distinguish gradations of transgression. I don't think you can deny that there were people who were saying it doesn't matter if a few innocent guys go down as long as we get the guilty ones. But innocence, it wasn't innocence and guilt in the way we think of the presumption of innocence was not at stake in this conversation. Well, not criminally. We weren't talking about uh, right, a but courtroom that is where, I mean, this, this and, and the thing that Matt Damon said was a diminishing miss to my ears. And I was not, by the way, I just want to go on the record here. I don't think I yelled at Matt Damon on the internet. I don't think I wrote critically about Matt Damon. Matt Damon is not the object of my ire. But I think that the reason that people were very angry at Matt Damon was that what he was doing as a powerful man was, to the ears of many, mischaracterizing diminishing and condescending to, uh, condescending around what many women and men felt was actually happening. And the, the power of a guy who has a public platform and a voice and the ability to make a statement that then gets broadcast to the world that mischaracterizes the power dynamics and the reality of the kind of conversation that was happening But, I mean, you're right. It did express the anxieties of many other people, but many other people have all kinds of anxieties that aren't necessarily correct or that 
you shouldn't not be able to argue with. But it's also an anxiety that you shared when you like in response to something like the shitty media men list, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even you said, "All right, this is clearly we can see how this is going to backfire or harm some innocent people, at least potentially." Well, I had anxieties around it. I think that my biggest anxiety was that it was going to harm the women who made it, which, by the way, it has. I mean, well, I don't know if what's going to happen, but, you know, Myra Donegan is being sued by Stephen Elliott. You know, I, of course, I write in the book about all of my mixed feelings, about all of this again, and many people were. The kind of writing that was being done, certainly not simply by me, but, you know, in BuzzFeed at N plus one, the, the, diligence of the reporting that was being done. It was some of the most nuanced, complicated, contradictory journalism of any news cycle I've ever lived through or participated in. And that's one of the reasons that people got mad at Matt Damon, because he was doing the flattening and saying, you know, these these nobody's making these these distinctions, when in fact, the very people putting forth the stories were being, in many cases, very careful about making the distinctions. And that's why people got mad at him. But truly, Sam, they got mad at him. And if if there's a belief that, you know, anger in response to public comments that you might make that might offend or demean or diminish a group of people might result in those people getting mad at you, and that's the big risk. I mean, this is, we really have to look at the kinds of power we're privileging and suggesting that any any you know, challenge to it is is harm done to the more powerful figure. And he is more powerful. He was not, he didn't, he's, he's fine. Well, yes, he's fine. But have you, did you see uh, Norm McDonald's penitential tour in response to some of the uh, dumb things he said? I mean, like. No, I did not actually. Oh, uh, okay. The point I'm making is that there's almost no one who is powerful enough. Again, this is only taking place on the left. On the right, you can actually be somebody who's molesting or guilty of repeated statutory rape, and you could be you know, running for office and have you know, mobs defending your good name. There's just a massive asymmetry here. But on the left, there's no one who is powerful enough who can reliably survive striking the wrong note on some of these topics. If it catches the the attention but of what the mob, does survive mean? You could just never work again, right? Now that may but matter Matt to you, Damon or it may, works again. may not. But I, mean, I don't. Is Louis C.K. is working again, and people are objecting sort, to it. Sort but of. He's yeah. working again. John Hockenberry, John Gomeshi, who's accused of hitting women. These men have been given big platforms. But, uh, well, and, so, and yes, some of them should have been objected to those platforms. If you're convicted but of hitting women, I, I'm not quite the notion that they're that they're forever, par- you know. W- do I think Charlie Rose should work again in any position of power? No, I don't. But he still is trying to make a comeback. Wait okay. for it. <laughs> Wait a minute. We got to just be clear, and now we're going to end here because I know you're coming to the end of your studio time. But we got to make a distinction between the people who are talking about this current moment, however ineptly, and then the people who are actually victimizing women. Right. So, so Matt Damon is in the first category. But- and his career isn't over, which is my no. point about Matt Damon. Yes, his career is not over. That's yes, we we agree about that. Right, but that's what you said. Your career can be ended by this. It can be, but it, it wasn't can... in the case of Matt Damon. There's no question that there are people whose shows were a hair's breadth from being canceled, but for the fact that they produced some 
profuse and, I would argue, abject and ultimately dishonest apology to placate the mob. I mean, that is happening more and more. I mean, it's just... Man, the use of the word mob. The mob was people who were voicing their objections. I mean, I don't know what instances you're thinking of where the hair's breath show or whatever. But again, the mob were people who were angry at things that people said or who voiced dissent or disagreement. The people who are struggling to have a good faith, honest conversation about complex social problems are at every moment being threatened with having the worst possible interpretation of a selected utterance getting collapsed down to some horrific caricature of obtuseness at minimum, but, you know, racism or bigotry more likely. And it's just, it's happening again and again. And the people who are completely losing their patience for it are the people who are less and less likely to vote for someone other than Trump if the left puts up a person whose basic message is, you're all a bunch of racists who are concerned about immigration or any of these other problems, and the conversation ends there. I just want to point out that the the scenario you just laid out, in which the vulnerability lies with the people who might say something that is heard as racist or sexist or misogynist or xenophobic or homophobic by people who object to racism, sexism, or homophobia, your framing is that's where the vulnerability is and that's where the attack and the peril is for the person who might say that thing. And what I don't hear is an acknowledgement of the fact that lots of people who are challenging racist, misogynistic, homophobic expressions are doing so in the context of a world in which a man who uses the N-word is our president, in which black votes are being suppressed and and voters of color are being purged, in which women's rights to their bodily autonomy are already badly stripped and likely to be gutted further, in which access to full health care and birth control, especially for vulnerable people who live in vulnerable economic positions, in part for reasons that are tied to their race and their gender, access to health care and to fair wages is deeply compromised, in which there is a, you know, a neo-Nazi march in Charlottesville that the president of the United States refuses to condemn, that the president wants to take away the acknowledgement of transgender identity, that many of the people who are objecting to racism and misogyny on the part of, you know, television executives or, or podcast hosts are doing so in part because they understand how those attitudes undergird policy that determines whether they live or die or incarcerated or are free, whether they actually go to jail, whether they are killed by the police, whether they are allowed to, you know, control their own reproduction and their own lives. The one other thing I want to point out is you said this has never happened to anyone on the left. No one on the left ever gets through. And yet, at the start of this conversation, you pointed out to me that the fact that Bill Clinton did essentially sail through was a big problem. We acknowledge that the fact that Ted Kennedy you know, got away with this kind of behavior, became problematic for his party. Yeah, yeah. It's a different, different moment in, in history. Yeah, yeah. But, they used to get through. But what's yeah. true is that the idea, your, your, you know, proposition that we're too hard on people on the left seems to conflict with the notion that we didn't do enough with the people on the left in the past. And 
you know, I, I fall on the side of addressing inequality in whatever form it takes. And it's, listen, it, we're all implicated in it. You know, this is, I have, you know, the, the, the work that I do is often blinkered in various directions in ways that are pointed out to me critically, aggressively. This is, we're all, we're trying to be better, juster, more inclusive. That is what I view the project as being about. And, you know, and that, and that voices raised an objection to offense or to, or to aggression or power abuse or a bad argument. Those voices raised in dissent aren't, by their nature, automatically punitive or unjust. That goes back to Martha Nussbaum, right? Martha Nussbaum sees anger as inherently punitive. I think the voices that are being raised are not always punitive in their intent. They are often corrective. They are often voices raised in an effort to push toward equality and liberation or something closer to it for more kinds of people. And, and you know, I, I just don't, I, I just object to the whole, my, my, my disagreement with you lies in the, in what I see as a reversal of who has power in these, in these circumstances. And I don't think that the people whose main power is writing a tweet are the punitive or aggressive or destructive forces in a world where the power held by, you know, the movie stars and the politicians has the power to shape the culture in which all of us tweeters live and shape our life circumstances and our opportunities and the economic provisions on which we and our families rely and and our rights and our abilities to defend ourselves or to get fair trials i just i just don't think that those are comparable degrees of of power honestly i agree with much more in that last battery than you would expect or realize. And so it's, it's sort of like a failure of communication on my part to leave you thinking that I don't agree with most of that or virtually all of that. The fear is that these problems are becoming harder to talk about rather than easier to talk about, given how much the temperature has turned up. And I just, I mean, my goal here is to figure a path forward so that we can talk about really the most important things in our society and not give any energy to the Trumpian side now, to speak in narrow political terms, that it can just use all of the asymmetries and disadvantages against reasonable people who are trying to create a society with true equality and true intellectual honesty and fact-based discussion and all the rest. And I think getting toward a society with real equality and real intellectual interrogation of our history and our future, I don't think there's any way to get there without making the conversation harder, not easier, because these things are really hard. And I think our error in, throughout our history has been telling ourselves an easier story, that, we've, you know, that, our, that our inequities are in the past, that we've addressed them, that we need to move forward without an eye toward them, and that that easier story has contributed to getting us where we are. And I think that moving forward, we, the difficulty is if we want to do it right, I don't think there's any way to do it without it being hard. Well, I will, we will leave it there. It's certainly hard at the moment, but I, I really appreciate your willingness to come on the show and get into the weeds with me. And it's really, it's been a thrill to talk to you. And uh, 
I really uh, enjoyed your book, and I hope people go out and buy it because you are giving voice to an anger and impatience that uh, many people, women and men, rightly feel. So thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me, Sam. I'll come back if you want to do this again. Awesome. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.